Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Reading is from Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock, and the water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tracy. And thank you, Bruce, for doing the generosity update. I do, I do love on page 12, there's the QR codes, and they're right next to each other. So you're trying to scan for more info, and oops, you're giving. So I, I like how, <laughs> I, I was just looking at that, I was like, trying to do it. That's our church. Um, welcome again to Redeemer Lincoln Square. We've been going through a series on the book of Exodus because... Exodus is the original story of freedom, and we live in a culture that loves the idea of freedom, and so what we're trying to do is we're trying to compare and contrast our story of freedom with the original story of freedom, and what we see in the book of Exodus, this is chapter 17, early on, the people of Israel, they wanted to be freed from slavery, and so Moses shows up, and with four months on the scene, they are freed from slavery, they are liberated, but by this moment in our text, they are now wandering around in the desert. And I think what we're learning is that there's a lot more to freedom than just physical freedom. I think what we're learning is that you can take the person out of slavery, but it's a lot harder to take the slavery out of the person. And so it took four months to get the people out of, you know, out of slavery, but it's taking now about, it's going to take 40 years to get the slavery out of the people. And I think that is shown itself in studies, psychological, sociological studies will show you that if you take people who are, have been enslaved or they've been in prison for a long time and then you free them, they do not immediately act free. It's a process. It takes time. It takes effort. And that's what we're seeing here as well. And I think this matters because our culture defines freedom as freedom from. Freedom from oppression. Freedom from tyranny. But what our culture doesn't do a good job 
is telling us what we're free to. What are we free to do and to act and to be? And that matters for us today because if freedom is more than just freedom from, what does that look like? If freedom is more than just freedom from, then that means freedom isn't just declaration and pronouncements. Our culture loves declarations and pronouncements of identity of who we are and what, we're, what we stand for. Right, we hear you, that phrase comes out a lot in culture, right? What do we stand for? You know, our, I stand with you. I stand, that's great. But the Bible wants us to be freed so much more than just physically. What is freedom spiritually and emotionally and, and mentally look like? What does that look like? What does real freedom look like? And I think this appeals to both Christians and non-Christians alike in our, in our midst. And so I think our text gives us a really nice, quick three-point outline. It look, we're going to look at today the posture of our heart, the position of the Lord, and then the provision that he gives. So the text breaks down that way, the posture of our hearts, the position of the Lord, and then the provision that he gives. So first, the posture of our hearts. And so right here, Exodus 17, we're three chapters after Moses leads the people through the, Dead sea, the Red Sea, that, which we looked at last week. And what's happened since then is there's been three stories of grumbling. This is the third story of three. And if you like patterns, this is a pattern. Three in a row is a pattern of showing their grumbling heart. This is the posture of their heart. Look at verse 1. They show up. They're in the desert. And it says that there is no water. Then verse 2, they quarreled with Moses. And then verse 3, they grumbled. And if you do a little word study on each one of those words, the word grumble means the blame. And the word quarrel, the Hebrew word is the word rib, and it means to dispute or to, at the same time, have strife. But I didn't know this until I looked at these words, that that word quarrel is actually a legal term. It is a, uh, this, that means when they're, when they're grumbling, they're not walking around kind of kicking stones going, stinking Moses, I don't, can't believe what he's, what's going on here. That's, that's when I think of grumbling, I think of that. But because this is a legal term, there is some sort of formal legal proceeding happening. So when you look at the, the phrase they say to him, they say, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us die of thirst? That is a formal accusation in a law court. And they are trying Moses. And so, that, why is, why, first of all, why would they do that at this point? And first thing I thought of is, growing up in New York, New Yorkers know that if you really don't like somebody, what do you do? You take them to court. Right? If you really don't like somebody, you don't say, oh, shucks, darn it. No, you sue them, and you make their life a living hell. I don't know if they, act, they had that New Yorker mentality, but we know this much, that the context of this space is thirst. And I don't know about you, but you can live a long time in the wilderness without food. You can live weeks, but you can only live a few days without food without thirst. So this seems like a very calculated effort to change leadership. Look at verse 4 where Moses says they're ready to stone me. I think that's another piece of evidence that this was a legal proceeding because stoning wasn't just like, let's just throw rocks at him. No, stoning was the consequence of a guilty verdict of a crime. So that's what's, what's happening. And they blamed Moses. And yet in verse 2, the real quarrel that they have to the Lord is that they couldn't see his provision. The, that's, what, that's what Moses says. They couldn't see his provision. I think, I think we're no different. I think that 
we can feel delivered by God in the past, but we don't feel we're delivered in the present. We can feel provided for by God in the past, but not now. One day you feel his care, the next day you don't feel his care. Maybe some of you here identified as a Christian maybe in the past, but now you're like, ah, oh, I'm not so sure. Because why? You felt his love then, but you don't feel it now. You feel his love maybe right now. Maybe some of you feel his love in some areas of your life, but in other areas of your life, it's a desert. That's why I think we're out in the wilderness. Vanessa brought up how this week it smelled like smoke and, and fire for many days. And for me, since I've done a lot of hiking and camping, it smelled like a campfire. You smelled like a campfire because that's what it smells like in the wilderness. And some of you are still there right now. Some of you feel like, you know what? God's not giving me the relationships that I want. He's not giving me the healing that I want. He's not giving me the, the dad that I want. He's not giving me the care that I want. Missionary Elizabeth Elliot tells this true story about her friend Brenda. Brenda was rock climbing for the first time in her life, and this is years ago, and she, she gets up about 100 feet, and she's resting on a ledge on the side of, of her rock climbing adventure, and she has a safety harness, but it was pulled too tight, and for whatever reason, it snapped, and the rope uh, came off and hit her in the eye, and her contact lens fell out. And she needed those contact lenses to... to to be able to see. So all of a sudden her eyes are blurry, so she's kind of groping around trying to find her contact lens, can't find it. And so where she is, she doesn't know what to do next, so she just continues to go up. That's the safest route. So she gets to the top, scared, of course, because she's doing it pretty much blind, gets up there, and everybody else gets up there too, and they're looking around. There's all this beautiful scenery, and she can't see it at all. And this is the place where we kind of grumble, right? This is where we say, what's the point? Why did you do this? Like, yeah, you gave me legs that I can climb up here, and you gave me friends to do this with, but I can't see anything. This is where we grumble and we say, how could you do this to me? Why would you do this to me? Later on, they hike back down the mountain. She had help with, her, with some of her friends to kind of, you know, get her way back down there. There was another group of climbers going up, and somebody uh, partly up the wall, you know, yells down, did anybody lose a contact lens? <laughs> Amazingly... This other climber saw an ant carrying a contact lens on its back. And it was just kind of walking on the ledge on like this little crack. And Elizabeth Elliot tells the story this way. She says, Brenda was during this time going, Lord, why did you do this to me? Why is this happening to me? I don't know. Here I am, but I don't know why you're doing this. But think of the ant. The ant's carrying this large disc going, I don't know why I'm carrying this thing. I can't eat it. I don't know why you have me doing this, but here I am. And in both cases, that's kind of how we feel a lot of the times, right? Both cases, we're, we're, we're like, hey, here I am, but at the same time, the pain is back. The suffering is back. I don't know why you're letting this happen. I'm carrying this burden. I don't know what it's for. And that's why we grumble. And that's why we accuse God. That's why there's parts of our hearts like, this doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem right. Because he doesn't seem like he's given us the freedom that we need, and he doesn't seem like he's given us the freedom that we want. And that is the posture of our hearts. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. 
It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. Now, secondly, the position of the Lord. In this context, in this space, what does God say to Moses? Does he say, you know what? Smite those fools. Does he say, you know what? Forget them. They're completely being unfair to you and to me. Let's start over. Snap the fingers. Begin again. Does he do that? No. Instead, in verse 5, what does, he say? what does he say? Well, first, Moses asks a question. What do I do to these people? And what God says is he says, hey, to the people who hate you, to the people who are wrongfully accusing you, to the people who are being unfair to you, to the people who are accusing both of us, verse 5, he says, I want you to go out in front of them. And to you and I, we're like, well, that's not a big deal to you or me. But again, that phrase, scholars point out, that's the exact same phrase that is, was used often of the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire throughout this entire Exodus text. So what God is saying is, I want you to provide for them the way that I provided for them. I want you to lead them. I want you to go out before them, like that pillar of smoke, like that pillar of fire, to love them and to care for them, even though they wrongfully accuse you and me. Now, at this point, this is where I go, well, how does God want Moses to provide? Because, you know, God's God, right? You know what he could have done at this stage? If he's God and they're thirsty, you know what he could have done? He could have snapped his fingers, bam, instant filling of water in everybody's stomachs. Or even better, you don't even need water, just instant hydration, you're already hydrated. He could have, right? He could have, he's God. So why doesn't he? Why doesn't he actually do it that way? And I think the answer is, there's a lot more going on in this text than just water and thirst. Go back to verse 1. It says, and and I had always glanced over this, but this time it's, they're traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. That means the Lord has put them in this place of thirst. That means the Lord has brought them to the place of no water. And that means we have to ask the next question, which is, why would he do that? Why does God bring us to dry places? Why does God bring us to desolate spaces and wildernesses? I, I've talked to you last week how my dad um, got cancer a couple weeks ago and he died. But since God is sovereign, he brought me here to some degree. He's brought you to dry places through your hurts and through your loneliness and through the, your sadnesses. Now, some of you will push back and say, wait, 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 wait. Are you saying then God is the origin of, of evil? And the answer the Bible gives over and over and over again very clearly is no, he's not. But it's also clear that God uses evil for good. And so we believe God is sovereign. And we believe that he is in control and he's our shepherd. And shepherds choose routes for their sheep. Then we can conclude that if there's suffering in our lives at some degree, if there's hurt in our lives to some degree, if we've experienced the death of a loved one, if we if, if we've had this space where we're going, holding that disc going, what am I doing here? Then to some, at some level, it's reasonable to conclude that that's the route that he's laid out for you. That that's the route that he wants you to be in right now. And I think this is the space, this is where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? 
And this is where our culture just doesn't know how to, doesn't even have categories for this. That it might be possible that God might not be giving you what you want, but he's giving you what you need. And that's a hard thing to hear. And there's no way for me to argue, that, argue you into that position of understanding. This is something you have to discover in your life over time. And it does take time. It might take 40 years. That's exactly what it took for the Israelites. But it takes time to get to this position that it's possible that he could have led, you know, I think he could have led the people through the wilderness and he could have made sure that there always was a stream of water for their thirst, but he didn't. And I think the answer is that some things are more important in life than physical thirst. That sometimes the absence of what we want, it's only in those spaces that that's the best time to see the presence of what we really need. Go back to the Israelites, right? Put yourself in their position. They're in pain. They're sad. They're having a hard time. They're confused and they're mad. And what does God do? He tells Moses, go out before them. But with what? Go back to verse 5. With who? Take your elders and the staff. And I didn't know this until I looked up Tim Chester's commentary on Exodus. But he says there that the staff was an authoritative judgment device. That was the very staff that was used to pronounce judgment on Pharaoh and Egypt through the the plagues. So to go out with elders and the staff, the elders act as witnesses. The staff is a judgment device. The people would have thought, oh, we're going to have a trial. Oh, okay, Moses is going to actually put himself on trial. And yet, that's exactly, even though they might have thought that, that's not what happens. And so the question then is, Wait, if this isn't people versus Moses, then what's actually happening? And I, and I think I've, I've failed to understand the, the gravity of this text until this past week or two. Because th- what happens here is the one and only place in the Bible, God says in verse 6, he says, bring out this trial, bring out the staff of judgment, bring out the witnesses, because I am going to stand before you. And again, that, word, that phrase doesn't seem like much to us. But to stand before, just like going out before is a way to show provision, to stand before was actually a, a text of judgment. It means that you're standing trial. And specifically, what's happening is, is God is saying, I'm allowing you to judge me. I'm allowing you, I'm going to put myself in harm's way in this space. And he says, I'm going to stand by that rock. But in, in Hebrew, the literal term is I'm going to stand on that rock. And then you're going to strike that rock. And I, I try to put myself in, in Moses' shoes. I'm, imagine Moses. He's like, wait a second. If, if I have this judgment you know, stick, and if I strike the rock with the judgment stick, and you're on the rock, then you're asking me to judge you. And this is where it gets really interesting, very kind of meta. The world right now, so many people blame God for the brokenness of the world. So many people say, accuse him and say it's his fault. And in an ironic twist with all the anger that all the people, that all the world has, for why God lets bad things happen, God puts himself on trial and takes the judgment. God allows that to happen. And this is at the point where I kind of back and I go, whoa, 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 wait a second. Is God really, is he really the origin of all evil and suffering? No. Is he the origin of, of, of your actions and when you wrongfully hurt other people through your actions and through your words 
and through your spaces when I hurt others. For why I over or underemphasize certain things. For when my heart says things that I don't want anybody else to hear. When my heart actually, when my motives are impure, when I do these things. Is he always at fault for that? Of course not. And that's when you realize, then why, then why? Here's the question. Why is then God taking the blame? And the answer that I, I, I the only answer that I could get to, the reason why he had let himself get struck is I racked my brain. Because I know this isn't fair. And I know this isn't right. I know this isn't just. And that's where I had the, the breakthrough. It's in the absence of justice for God that what, we can finally see the presence of his love for us. That it's, it's only in the absence of being absolved, but God deserves to be absolved from any wrongdoing, that it brings the presence of real freedom that you and I could actually have. Your salvation is more important to God than for the world, than for him to let the world know who he really is and what he's really about. And I think that's actually the grounds and reasons why, both why you can trust him and how you can then get real freedom in your life. Why you can trust him and why you can move forward. Because I think it's easy, by the way, I think it's easy to trust God and to uh, Get, have, feel like you have freedom when everything's going great. When your life's going great and everything's wonderful and, and happy, hunky-dory, it's easy to trust God. And some of you might be in that space. That's fine. But the best way to trust God is when you don't get what you need, it's in that space where you realize that was just really a want. Think, think, put it, let me put, try to put it slowly. All, all needs are wants, but not all your wants are really needs. In fact, a lot of times what we think we need is really just a want, and we have to discover that. Most of what we want really isn't a need. So what do we need most? Over and over and over again. The freedom to. The freedom to really be fully human. The freedom to be fully accepted and loved and cared for is provisioned by God. When we feel and know what it means to be made in his image, when we understand the depth of the love and the care that he has for us, when we rely on him and him alone. And so before we move on, I want to ask you, both at home and here and present, do you rely on God? Do you trust God, even when it doesn't seem to make sense? The word trust is really faith. Faith is a spiritual word people use, but faith, what is it at the essence of faith? It's trust. Trust is when you say, you know what, God, even though it seems like you're taking too long, even though your plans aren't my plans, even when your schedule isn't my schedule, I trust you. Maybe you're thirsting right now, but maybe that thirst is showing you what you really need. My parents, one of their favorite uh, quotes they would always say to, to me and my brothers was from John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. I'll say it again. Everything is needful that he sends, but nothing is needful that he withholds. And I have to ask myself, I've been asking myself for weeks, do I really believe that? Do I really rest in that, that means it's possible that you could be wandering for 40 years and it's actually a sign of his love for you. The absence is really about his presence. And that means it's possible to lose somebody and yet in the absence of, of the loss that you feel brings the presence of more beauty of him and more love of him and more understanding and more awareness of what he's about. And that's why you and I can say, I'm thirsty, but I know he loves me. I'm hurting, but I know he loves me. 
That's why you can trust him more than anything else. And I think only when you do that, only when you see him standing on that rock for your salvation, will you be able to say, he's worthy. I can trust him. That he put himself in harm's way for me. Stand, the, the posture of our hearts is blame, but the position of God is on that rock. And only by seeing him on that rock will we get real freedom. Now, last point. Okay, the provision that he provides. If you're like me, what you're saying right now is, that's nice, Mike, thank you very much, but it's really hard to trust God when I'm hurting. It's really hard to focus on what's real and true when the immediate, when the felt need I'm feeling is, how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to make it through? How am I going to get over the loneliness and the hurt and the heartache? And so while the posture of our hearts is blame, and we don't just blame God, by the way, we blame others. It's their fault for why I'm mad, bad, sad, why I'm not glad right now. It's their fault for why I don't feel free right now. And yet, the position of our Lord on that rock is unlike any other faith in the world. Every other faith, you know what it does? Every other faith puts you on the rock, and you are judged. God is saying, obey in every other, other, every other faith, and then you'll be accepted. And by the way, even our culture that doesn't have any faith, what are we doing? We put each other on the rock, and we're judging each other. Throwing those zingers, throwing those phrases, throwing those pronouncements at each other. Only our God stands trial and puts himself in harm's way. Why? Ultimately, it's for the provision that you never have to thirst again. Where does the water come from in our text? It comes from a rock. That's a pretty hard place to get water from. That's on purpose, by the way, because we drink from lots of other streams, lots of other waters, the water of your, of, of your good looks, of, peop, of your popularity, of your bank account, of your career, of your family, your friends, whatever you want to call it. And yet, those waters won't quench your thirst. Centuries later, talking to people who would have remembered the story. This was etched, by the way, into the Jewish imagination. Jesus Christ, in John chapter 4, says to the people around him, I have a living water for you, and whomever drinks this water, I will, you will never thirst again. A couple chapters later, John 7, if anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink from, for whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow within them. And then Paul, later on in the letter to Corinth, 1 Corinthians 10, says this, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. I think what God is doing in this passage, what is so beautiful, what I, I love how it's like baby steps. He is foreshadowing the eventuality of Jesus Christ. That when he stands on that rock, he is saying, I know I'm going to have to take this judgment. Which is ironic, isn't it? Because I think we all blame God at some level, and then God says, okay, guess what? I'm going to do it. I will take it. I will stand, even though there's a wrongful trial, even though there's a wrongful conviction for Jesus, even though there's a wrongful execution, when Jesus Christ is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is quoting Psalm 22, which if you read the entirety of the psalm, go down later, it says, my mouth is dried up, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Jesus got the thirst that you and I never have to really thirst. Jesus was dried up so that you and I could be filled with living water. 
And I think the reason why he allows this to happen, because you know what? He cares less about the evil done to him if it means getting you and me back. I was watching um, on Netflix just yesterday. It was like lunchtime. I try to like, you know, just don't judge me. But I, I, I put on Netflix sometimes just to kind of, uh, you know, zone out for a second. And I put on the movie Hook, which is a movie from my childhood from 1991. It's where Robin Williams, uh, who, uh, you know, great comedian who's, who died, unfortunately, he plays the adult Peter Pan. And in this story of Hook, He's grown up and has kids, but his kids have been captured by uh, James Hook in Neverland and brought to Neverland. And so his 10-year-old son is being brainwashed by Hook, and he's starting to wear pirate clothes, and he's identifying as being a pirate, and he sees himself as a pirate. And so Peter Pan and the Lost Boys, they have to battle Hook and the pirates to get his children back. And the leader of the Lost Boys, a little bit older boy, his name is Rufio. And there's a scene at the end of the movie where Rufio is, you know, sword battling, sword fighting the hook. And, you know, he misses a move and Hook stabs him in the heart. And as he's dying, Peter Pan, the adult Peter Pan, grabs him and holds him. And Rufio looks him in the eye and says, you know what I wish for? Because that was, you know, what's, what's the wish? What's everybody's uh, happy thought? He says, I wish I had a dad like you. And I had seen that scene so many times. I actually thought it was kind of a cheesy scene, really. It's kind of like mushy. Yesterday, I was bawling. I was a puddle. I was just, oh, I had a good dad, too. (laughs) Because when he said, I wish I had a dad like you, it reminded me, man, I had a good dad. And here's the thing, the pain of that moment yesterday, that's what grief does, right? You're kind of going, you're fine, all of a sudden, boom, you're on the floor. The pain of that moment, missing my father, all of a sudden it opened something up. I was able to see things that I couldn't see before. See, I'd never seen that Peter Pan in that exact scene, the son Jack was watching the whole thing. He was identifying as being a pirate. And he watches the sacrifice of Rufio, a boy he didn't know, not personally, but was willing to sacrifice himself for Jack. And then he watches the love of his father holding and caring for this boy. And it, it was when both happened at the same time, it was the power of Rufio's sacrifice and the love of his true father. That's when he wakes up. That's when, you, know, and the, you know what he does when he wakes up? The first thing he does is he says this phrase, Dad, I am so sorry. Repentance is the first thing. The first thing he does is he admits, I've been wrong. The second thing he does is he throws his arms around his father, he takes off the clothes, and he says, I want to go home. Because he holds on to the true father. And he identifies as the true son of Peter Pan. First thing I want to ask you is this. Do you have the love of the father in your life in that way? Do you throw your arms around him? Do you feel like you can do that? Because if he really gave himself for you, if you saw the sacrifice and the love, you would be able to sacrifice and love him and others. That's what we see here. If he gave himself for you, it would be so much easier for you to give himself, for you to give yourself to him. And I never would have been able to see in this very simple scene 
viewed so many heart, so many times the heart change possible of what a person's sacrifice and the love of the Father could actually do. I never would have had that if I hadn't lost my own father. I never would have had that. And so it makes me start wondering, wait a second, what else in life have I been missing because I wasn't seeing? What else couldn't I see the presence of because of the absence, without the absence of my father? And I'll put it to you this way. What might you not be seeing because you're not allowing the absences of your life to show you the presence of what God really wants to show you? That's what this is here for. That's what this is actually saying to us. That's where the, the power is. The Lord wants to show us so much more of himself, and it's going to happen through the absences of your life. Some of you have had a bad earthly father, and I guarantee you that's what's hard, making it hard for you to see the goodness of God's fatherliness. But some of you have had really great fathers, and I guarantee you that's actually keeping you from seeing the provision and relying on the true father to satisfy and only in absence will you see his presence. I think it's very possible right now that you have a good shepherd who might be leading you down paths that you don't want to go down, that you don't think that you need, but it's, or that you want, but it's what he has for you. He might be leading you down paths that you definitely don't want, but it's, it's what you need. And he removes some of our wants so that we can see the need of what? His love and his grace and his beauty and his majesty. The reason why it's possible out of affliction to become joyous, content, and stable people. The reason why out of failure you can become humble and bold and wise is because it's in the desert that you can actually thirst for water. And when you thirst for water and you finally get it, you get an experience of life. A couple years ago, I went hiking and I grossly uh, misappropriated how much water I would need for the hike. And by the end of the hike, because of the, the sun, because of the the heat we were so dehydrated i was we were stumbling we were hallucinating we were uh we 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 were not seeing reality as it really was we were completely unprepared and luckily we found a remote cabin on the side of a mountain and i knocked because it, it clearly looked like somebody was living there nobody answered but the door was unlocked and so we went inside and there was a faucet there and we drank and i tell you what i've never experienced water like that You've all drank water. You haven't really drunk water (laughs) until you thirst for it. And it tasted better than life, which was a completely different experience. You might have thought you've tasted the waters of Jesus. You haven't until you experienced the waters of Jesus. Some of you might have thought maybe at this point in your life, oh, yeah, I've experienced the waters of Jesus. If you're even asking that question, it means you actually haven't. That's what's available for us. Jesus will keep you from drinking from the wells of approval and, and uh, comfort and control and all these other things that won't fulfill us. You can't have real freedom in any other way. And so to the end, let me just say this. You're going to be searching and never finding unless you thirst and then experience the living waters of Jesus Christ. And so if, if you're here today and you're not sure if you want to drink yet, I'm okay with that. Compare and contrast the other waters of your life. The world can be falling apart around you. But if you have him, if you have his reliving water, then you're changed. If you have finished drinking from this water or you're still drinking from it and it's quenched your thirst, you know what you should do? You should want to get other people around this water too. 
What are you doing? What are we doing as a, as a congregation? In word and deed, how are we loving? How are we moving people closer to the waters? If we did, this community, you individually, we collectively, would experience the love of Jesus in profound ways with his presence, but through the absences of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word, that the joy of freedom comes by seeing you on that rock, foreshadowing the day that you will take the blame, undeserved, unfairly, but through that, we know we can trust you and love you. We put ourselves in your midst. We throw our arms around you, the true love of the Father, through the sacrifice of your Son. Father, there are so many things that we're probably missing right now because our nose is to the, the grindstone because we can't see it. And, and it's, a hard, it's a hard word to know that the absences that you bring will bring the presence of what we need. But we're here for it. And I pray that we as a community can support each other through it. Grief is real. Pain is real. You do not, you've come to wipe every tear one day. You've come to fix and bring the new heavens and new earth. But in the meantime, Father, I pray that we come to see our need in you and the provision given. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.